This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. We want to send a big happy birthday shout out to Byte host Warren Davies tonight. Coming up later this evening, uh, we're going to be talking about internet stereotypes and then a little bit about crowdfunding trends in Australia with the Possible Crew. So do stick around for that. Before we get there, lots happening in news at the moment. Um, there's some there's some more Uber news which we have to touch, Dan. There is. Um, it's an exciting day for uh, food lovers who are also Uber users. Uh, I've, I'm not sure if you remember a few weeks ago, Uber was delivering puppies around to offices around the city. Uh, yesterday, they went one step further in the excitement stages and are now uh, delivering food uh, from the, uh, selected uh, restaurants in inner Melbourne, uh, around 80 restaurants, um, including, uh, but not limited to, uh, Gazi, uh, Jimmy Grant's and uh, Supernormal. Um, That's a pretty high level of restaurants. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting. I mean, it's, we're, obviously we're not a food show, but I've noticed that particularly with the online ordering of food, it's gotten a lot, kind of, they've stepped up from your greasy pizza down the corner with your menu log and now you know, with services like Fedora and um, I've totally forgotten the other one, uh, Deliveroo. Deliveroo. There we go. Thank you very much. The most um, Australian looking of services, but it's not it's actually not. Australian. No, <laughs> that, that confused me no end. Now, I've made a big boo-boo at the beginning of this show, which will happen when you're busy wishing happy birthday to one of your colleagues. And uh, that's that I've forgotten to introduce who's in studio with me this evening, including myself. <laughs> <laughs> so tonight we have Dan Salmon on panel. Uh, we have Colin Jacobs on uh, hosting with us. Howdy. And I'm Vanessa Taholka. Uh, yeah, we get around to that when we do. <laughs> so, so Dan, are you pretty tempted by this Uber Eats potential? I am, particularly seeing as, as, as a, um, uh, I suppose, an incentive for new users, the, the delivery fee is being waived. So you can actually pay cost price of sitting in the restaurant for the food, which is an exciting thing. Um it, technically, UberX is illegal in Victoria at the moment, so um, you know you've got to be a bit careful about those side of things. Oh, but um, piffling technicalities. Yeah, it's, a, it's only a matter of time. I have a feeling that it'll be fine. Uh, it's it's proven popular in US cities. Uh, they they launched it last year um, with you know different menus and that kind of thing. But I think considering the the way that food culture is in Melbourne, it'll probably take off. So this is interesting because uh, some of their competition have hit the market. People like Menulog, and uh, they haven't had such formal partnerships with the people who they get food from. They've just sometimes made things available and then uh, called up restaurants, ordered things, and restaurants have been a little bit surprised to know that their food's <laughs> available on Menulog. And Uber Eats, it looks like they've taken a little bit more of a formal approach partnering with um, all these fans. Well, well yeah, and, and I mean, it's um, it's it's going to be good for the consumer in the end, but I mean, obviously the kind of experience of going to these restaurants and actually being in there and eating what they have to, to offer is half the kind of Romantic, romantics or romanticism <laughs> of going to a restaurant. Um, I think the app can't nail that part. Probably of the not. Well, you know, when yeah. they're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on fit outs, you'd probably think they'd be rather annoyed that you're not going to come in and experience it when you're eating your dinner. But so, speaking about the importance of customer experience, Colin, there's an article about the uh, the MBN. What's what's the latest on that front? So a new voice has joined into the chorus criticising Australia's current NBN plan. Laurie Patton from the uh, Internet Society from Internet Australia, they have launched a bit of a campaign, it seems, calling for a rethink, looking at options 
that aren't just fibre to the node, which is the current government's policy, but fibre to the distribution point, which gets the fibre a little bit closer to the house and means that it will be easier to upgrade all the way to people's homes in the future. Um, it's pretty pretty difficult to find anyone right now who's a fan of the, the government's fibre-to-the-node plan. The costs keep blowing out, the delays keep rolling on, and it's getting harder and harder to defend as Australia sort of slips slowly trickling down the international rankings of broadband speed. They're, they're saying we're at 60th now, which is pretty depressing. Mm-hmm. And uh, Turnbull's what is called the mixed technology model... Um, Apparently, the Internet Australia group surveyed their members and found 80% dissatisfaction with that model. Yes, they're they're clued up enough to know that Australia is eventually going to have to be all fibre. The mixed technology model includes copper. Uh, Recently, it appears that the cost of maintaining the copper, the dirty little wires that are sort of buried in your backyard and taking your phone into the house, could be 10 times as high as they thought. I mean, some of this is is 100 years old. It's long past its end of life. So since since it's inevitable we'll have to move to fibre at some point in the future, why not do it now where it can actually get us ahead of the curve and invest that money when we're able rather than sort of milk it to the very end while everyone's suffering and buffering? Mm. Well, considering uh, we now have an, uh, a double dissolution election called, that means it's it's the time to be lobbying your members of parliament. And if you have an interest in, in seeing a healthier NBN model, then uh, do try and read up about this and, yeah, do try and educate yourself and maybe slip a slip an email to uh, someone who can make a difference. Absolutely. Maybe even the uh, Prime Minister for Communications. <laughs> yes. Yes. Now, uh, Australia Post had some news this week. They are set to test mail delivery by quadcopters. It's difficult. A, it's difficult. I'm, yeah. I mean, there, there has been kind of precious little detail other than it's been happening out in Dandenong South um, and they've been, you know, just testing various, uh, I suppose, scenarios. A drone can't really ca- carry much more than a kilo, so uh, if you're ordering, you know, a gigantic pair of shoes or some kind of, like, you know, tech equipment, it's unlikely that um, they'd be able to use the drones that they're using to actually mm. deliver it. But... My shoes are under a kilo, I know, by selling shoes on eBay. <laughs> <laughs> But um, the Australia Post have been saying that um, they've been trying 50 uh, or delivering to 50 households twice a week just to test the demand of how it's uh, going. It, the, it, the argument is that it will be uh, better for rural locations, um, but you know we'll, we'll see. It doesn't. They do need to obviously employ someone to be operating the drone because it's not just a matter of it's not like a remote control car. No, that's right. There's a lot of regulatory considerations there about where and how they can fly and uh, line of sight sort of things and. Yeah, it gets quite complex pretty mm. quickly. Uh, great to see uh, them doing so many things in uh, the tech space. They had those uh, remote lockers that you could get into, the parcel lockers. Um, they've been doing great analysis about the packages that get sent around and, you know, are really on top of the fact that, yes, we know mail's declining, but packages are up and mm-hmm. good to see them using this to take advantage. And they're really trying to pivot themselves to a package company and there are constant rumours that they might be spun off or privatised as a package delivery company one day, so I suppose having a innovative tech portfolio will help that but whatever gets the packages packages delivered quicker i suppose yeah they had a great stall at the uh at pause fest a little while back where they were demoing some of their data capabilities because they're moving so many packages around they actually have incredible amounts of information about what's getting delivered to homes just because they they actually know what's in most of those packages which really blew my mind actually and um it was quite exciting watching interactive maps of different locations and you know 
activity monitors flashing as things get delivered around the place. Yeah, it's, it's pretty exciting times. Um, you know, we all feel fondly for mm. Australia Post, so I hope that they do well in the space. This is true. You're with Bite Into It with Dan, Colin and Vanessa. Thanks for tuning in. We've just been joined in studio by our illustrious guest for this evening. Her name's Dr Lauren Rosewarne. You might know her as Senior Lecturer in the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Melbourne, or you might know her because she's a writer, researcher and frequent media commentator on issues relating to gender, sexuality, pop culture and the media. It's a lot more colourful than some of the topics we get to on this show. So, Lauren, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, you're also the author of eight books, and tonight you're here to discuss one of them with us. It's called Cyber Bullies, Cyber Activists, Cyber Predators, Film, TV and Internet Stereotypes, and it's come out this year. It's an excellent read. With and an amazingly catchy title. <laughs> just rolls off the rolls tongue. Rolls off the tongue, yeah. yeah. I didn't realise how difficult it was to say until now. But um, it is an enthralling read, and uh, I wonder... Um, what inspired you to, to write on this topic? I guess that when there's uh, crimes, I start the book by telling an anecdote about um, being 19 years old when the Columbine massacre happened and watching the coverage. It happened to be my birthday and I was home from university and I was watching all the coverage on television and they kept repeating that the two perpetrators liked playing online games and that they had networked computers, which at that time was a little novel, late 90s. And since then, I guess it's just been playing in the back of my mind that this seems to be a consistent theme in coverage of crime, where we like to have a look at what kind of online activity perpetrators had and if that has some sort of link to propensity towards violence. And I think as much as all the research would say that these two aren't linked, we still, the media still likes to perpetuate this strange story, much like how in previous eras we've had the preoccupation with uh, violent videos or uh, violent video games, the idea of online activity as somehow being inherently insidious, I think, uh, st- struck something in me that I thought it seemed really strange in a world where we're all online all the time. Somehow these people, these people are more devious than the rest of us. It's, it's great. When I was reading your book... Um what struck me is that uh, we are well aware that every time a new technology comes out and revolutionises the world and um, connects people in different ways, it is open to um, a moral panic. There can be a moral panic. There is a moral panic about using telephones and uh, there have been moral panics about washing machines in houses. Radios. As though radio is going to dehumanise us and keep and estrange us from our family members. You Absolutely. Know, radio would make us go wild. But what I really loved about your book is that it didn't just talk about a moral panic as a, as a whole sense. It actually broke it up into the many subtle little ways that people are concerned. Um, can you tell us about some of the different um, ways that people, that this sort of, these fears expressed themselves? Yeah, so one of the overarching themes in the book, and I think that I centre the, the book around six stereotypes of internet users that you see time and time again in film and TV presentations, uh, which is the lens I look at um, the stereotypes through. A theme consistent through it is that somehow the internet is a place, a place you can go, a place where bad stuff happens and where bad people are bred and get you. And I think this is a sort of underpinning of most of the stereotypes is that it your internet use somehow reveals something about your character that's linked to the dark side. So if you go online, for example, to date... 
it's going to be revealing that either you're looking for prey to murder and chop up and bury in your backyard or you're just a fat loser. <laughs> and either way, it's not good. Um, but the internet is your outlet for that, unlike normal people who meet in a meet cute on the street um, at the laundromat, etc. Only weirdos go online, even though, again, and this is something I do in the book, is I compare the stereotype to real life and how even though in real life the internet is becoming up there in terms of um, modes to meet our partner on screen it's very it's almost never presented that way invariably it's just a stepping stone you used for a few laughs before you meet the true love of your life which will be offline one of the stereotypes you look at is the net geek and i wonder has that changed as internet startups and and internet products have become such a big part of the economy because now geeks tend to be billionaires uh, that are portrayed in the news. Does that give being a net geek a bit more uh, kudos and a bit more cred or have the portrayals remained the same? On one hand, there's lots of characteristics with these net geeks that look like the net geeks of old, you know, like Eugene from Greece, for example, where you've got the socially awkward guy who's invariably a virgin, um, doesn't know how, you know, gets bullied, etc., this stereotype has continued. The idea, though, that he's now more likely to live in mum's basement. Uh, he's still going to have awkwardness with sexual, um, sexual, or, you know, the opposite sex, having sex, etc. The difference, I guess, is that he has a social life online. Now, that becomes the focus of activities. In the past, films might have presented a preoccupation, say, with a model train set. So it's an updated stereotype. But what's interesting is that Somehow at the same time as this change has been happening culturally, other people have embraced the idea of sort of nerd chic. So non, non-nerds, if you like, or people who don't actually have a particular interest in technology one way or other, are adopting aspects of nerd culture that used to be mocked and maligned as high fashion. So you get Justin Timberlake, for example, wearing oversized glasses and a T-shirt that, that says nerd. And this is almost like it's an attempt to look like you're not mainstream, except that that T-shirt gets sold at Forever 21. So, And then now nerds, actual nerds don't mind the label anymore. Actual nerds, though, don't want to look like that anymore. So this ability to just look at someone and work out where do you fit in the pecking order has been made more difficult by that. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Do you think that um, the, there's anything to the issue of um, some nerds not being that great with cultural criticism and uh, not actually having a voice in critiquing some of the media that's out there? I mean, when you think of, say, dreadful films like The Net and yep. their, their really inaccurate portrayal of technology... Yep. Um, you would get the occasional geeks back in the day saying, oh, this is terrible, no one understands what we do. But I feel like there's been fatigue with that sort of sentiment because it's exhausting to say, oh, this is always inaccurate and it's kind of boring. And instead, um, you've seen the media's portrayals go off in one direction and almost the reality go off in another. And that's with both good and bad elements. I mean, do you think that... um, you know, geeks could have more of a voice in criticising these, these sort of media portrayals? Well, it's tricky because on one hand, the stereotype type of the neckbeard, for example, is only a guy who goes online and criticises, you know, uh, comic book guy of The Simpsons. Worst episode ever. I can't wait to get online and tell everybody. So that stereotype is already in our culture in terms of existence. Mm. In real life, though, is there a role for that? I'm not sure. When I was researching um, uh, uh, hacking, in one of the stereotypes I talk about is the side 
cyber activist and hacking seems to get a disproportionate amount of nerd attention online arguing, well, this isn't what hacking looks like. And you know, the first thought that comes to mind is the beautiful scene from Swordfish, where um, <laughs> it's a hack that involves fellatio and a gun to your head. Now, as weird, um, you know, because I know that most of us do hack that way. So weird. And another one, there's a hack dance, which involves uh, Hugh Jackman dancing and hacking, at the, as you do, and smoking and drinking all at once with multiple monitors. There is, however, a reality that filming hacking is difficult and it's not splendid for the screen. It's actually just pages of code. And you don't want that. What you want is sort of a picture of a gate and, you know, a knocking on the door as though to try and visually represent a uh, something that's actually not translatable as a visual presentation. And I think that will always lead to a, a disparity between what true geeks or true nudes want in their presentations versus the reality. But then you have a show like Mr Robot that has got people talking in terms of that's the best that we've got so far where a lot of nerds have actually been enthusiastic about portrayals there. Is the hacker a hero or a villain? Because often in the movies, when they need the plot to be advanced, they bring in the hacker and he solves a problem with his amazing hacking skills. And it's always a he, invariably. We'll we'll get to Trinity later. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But nearly always, for all of the stereotypes, it's nearly always. Only apparently there's something to do with a penis at a keyboard. I'm not... Yeah. So is that a is that a villainous or sort of role, or are they actually sort of you know using skills to solve problems? Is that a not entirely negative portrayal? Look, I think it taps. Yeah, it can be good in the sense that we want to look at technology um, as a sort of saviour. And a bit of a side note, I've been supervising a PhD this year and, and the student was looking at young people's visions of the future. A theme that kept coming up in young pe- people's visions of the future was the idea that technology will save us. So it's no surprise that actual people in real life have that perception from film and TV. The flip side, however, though, is that the hacker is insidious, is going to exploit us, is going to steal our identity, which was the th- theme of the net in 1995 and really sort of set a theme for these type of presentations is that we're vulnerable because we've now become basically our entire entity is about data and we're vulnerable to having all of that stolen. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of... uh uh, things being stolen. You, you touch on the idea of scammers. Yeah. Um, do you want to uh, unpack perhaps the, the stereotype of the scammer? Yeah, so a theme that I talk quite a bit about is this repeated idea of the Nigerian money scams, for example. So that if you're going to go online, you're, you're going to have a certain character who goes online, invariably someone who's socially awkward, hasn't had l- much luck with the ladies normally, goes online to have the luck with the ladies, ends up meeting a princess who just has a small financial problem <laughs> and just needs your social security number. And what's the harm in that? And that portrayal, and it's quite common in film and TV, subtly says there's a certain kind of person who dates online and that certain kind of person is a weirdo, is gullible, is an exaggeration of our fears in terms of what might happen to us online. Mm. And and that, I suppose, the the, uh, danger of being exploited... goes to the other idea of the predator who actually goes out there and and takes that kind of thing. Yeah, and there's all these daytime made-for-television films that have, you know, the guy in the hoodie at the cave. There's one which is the guy from um, Happy Days and whose name just escapes me, McGinley. um, Jefferson from Married with Children. Anyway, that guy, and his name is Scan Man in the show, and he's always (laughs) filmed in shadow, and he types and he says things like, I've been waiting for you, and it's just, it's a sort of visual presentation of this seedy badland 
plans, which actually that's a real exaggeration. That's from, I, I think the, the film is called Cyber Predator or Cyber Stalker or something like that. Um, but that's an exaggeration of actually a theme that's in a lot of portrayals where there is a shadowy figure in the background. I remember when they were looking at artwork for my book, it was invariably hooded guy, guy in a hoodie at a keyboard. Uh, this is our imagining of, of the internet predator just waiting to steal our identity. There's been a couple of figures that, that match up to that description in some ways, like Julian Assange and Edward Snowden. They've been in very famous and been in the news a lot in, in the last few years. Do their, the way they've been portrayed in the media, is that reflected in the way that these sorts of characters who liberate information and whatnot are portrayed in, in movies and TV? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Julia, Julian Assange because it, it ties, and I also mentioned Mr. O, um, uh, Mr. Ob, earlier, it ties into the idea that there is something actually not just behaviourally strange about internet users and geeks, but actually, are they? Can we pathologise them? Do they have something medical that might be wrong with them that makes them how they are? And there's a huge slew of characters in film and TV who are both. Uh, highly connected to internet use and also assumed to be on the spectrum. Now, that's the autism spectrum. They're very rarely diagnosed. That's the sort of, I guess, playing fast and loose with, you know, it's the Sheldon on Big Bang Theory argument where could he be? Maybe he's not. He probably is. But what we'll do is we'll take the good bits that we like about the diagnosis and have all the comedy (laughs) associated with it without the burden of having to stay true to a diagnosis. And you see this a lot across uh, film and TV where recurring characters often have traits associated with Asperger's that seem to explain um, their internet use as though, okay, well, we can totally understand they're biologically weird and different than the rest of us. Yeah, um, so in a lot of uh, film and TV, you don't see particularly young people using technology the way that they really rapaciously are always surrounded by a couple of screens and doing multiple things at once. But we're starting to see um, really edge case uh, beginnings of people doing text messaging and stuff in shows. So you've got Kevin Spacey in House of Cards and um, you know some of the Black Mirror series has been really interesting in its use of, of those sort of multi-narratives. Multi um, do you think that this is all going to change as a, a new generation who's digital native, like, grows up and just expects their media to be a bit more realistic? Or will the media itself change and need to be delivered differently? I mean, you know, are those people going to be watching films the way we watch films? Yeah, there's a, a couple of interesting things there. On one hand, the reality of our consumption of the media has changed, so we're more likely to be screen stacking where mm. I know I can't remember the last time I watched a film domestically as opposed to the cinema and didn't have something in front of me to play. And, and you know... and. I think you take it for granted, which is why it's so difficult to get young people at the cinema to turn your bloody phone off, because it's what I do all the time. Mm. The other aspect, though, is are we going to see film and TV change where they incorporate text message? Because we've seen it, I think House of Cards is a good example where it's done well. I watched a telecast of the 2002 Jesus Christ Superstar the other day. I wanted to check out this very point, and I'm glad you mate brought it up. Text messages are used in that, so and it also looked incredibly dated. Mm. And this is a tr- this is a troubling aspect of using technology in film and TV, and yes. why you see producers not do it, because it really marks the technology. At, when I, I watched this Jesus Christ Superstar telecast deliberately for because I'd been told it was a mod, Tim Minchin had done a modern modern version. I'm looking at it and something's not right. It feels a little old. And it's just purely the way the phrasing was done in the text messages just looked a little old. And we're 
only talking four years. So shelf life is really important and I think that's going to be why you sometimes see shows err on the side of caution and not embrace new technology too quickly because it also dates it really quickly. Yeah, that's a that's a really astute comment. Um, in terms of uh, say the, the cyber predators, uh, you know your, your Silk Road sort of aspects of the internet and what have you. Um, when you read about these sort of spaces in the media, it does it does feel like these are places that you just oh whoops you know I clicked on something and I got there. Do you do you have anything to say about you know did you discover anything about the way you know people think about um, you know the scary places on the internet? Look, and this is something that's come up um, perpetually in child pornography debates where people. People who don't know much about technology seem to think there you are looking up recipes and suddenly the child porn pops out. I have been writing and researching about sexuality for about 13 years. This has never happened to me. I've never accidentally stumbled across four kilos of cocaine for sale or the option (laughs) to rape a child. This has just not happened to me because I think you have to be really looking for that material, A, but you also, particularly with sort of subversive material like child pornography, it's not at www.kittyporn.com. And I think that highlights a real misunderstanding. And it's natural because it's fear of technology, but a misunderstanding of how this... You know, it's not www.silkroad.com. Oh, I can hire a hitman just as I can order a pizza. Um, but the fact that you've got sort of this misunderstanding, I think, changes, uh, underpins mis- you know misconceptions and fears. A show like The Good Wife, though, is really an outlier example that has done this stuff well, that has done dedicated episodes on Bitcoin, done dedicated episodes of Silk Road, and done a good job to the best of its ability in a you know, 42 minute <laughs> episode explain these technologies in a way that's both realistic and also um, moderated in terms of its you know, severity. So speaking of panics and things that are misrepresented, one of the archetypes you look at is the cyberbully. Now, in in the mainstream media and and when it comes to politics as well, cyberbullying is is seen as this thing that's other. It occurs on the internet. I might see it as a bit more of an just an extension of actual bullying, which which is probably how the kids see it as well. They don't draw this distinction between offline life and online life, I think, when it comes to these things. But can tell us a bit about that archetype and how it's portrayed. Yeah, it's a bit interesting because it seems that particularly daytime television, um, television targeted children's very special episodes of certain series want to portray this idea that cyberbullying is a burgeoning social problem that will always lead to suicide. Researchers actually say uh, cyberbullying doesn't have that direct correlation. It's no, uh, it's another type, which means we need to take it seriously. But this idea that it's somehow this scourge and children are just going off and killing themselves and that that's the root cause. As we all know, something like suicide is incredibly complicated. Something that research does seem to indicate about cyberbullying, which I find interesting, it does change the balance of who's doing it because of factors like anonymity, the fact that the person who's more likely to be at the tail end of the bullying, the sort of under, underdog, a smaller kid, can actually have a disproportionate advantage online. They may be smarter, better with words, cleverer, uh, and therefore there is the capacity to turn the tables. I'm not sure I see that as equal opportunity bullying <laughs> or levelling the playing field, but it does change the balance of the perpetrators. Nelson Muntz, for example, the bullying. The Simpsons is unlikely to be a whiz with words online, so therefore, uh, yeah, that changes victim and perpetrator. And perpetrator. 
Lauren, I've learnt so much in the in the time with you, and um, I learnt so much more reading your book. Uh, thank you very much for your time this evening. If anyone out there wants to get this, it's a fabulous read, and it would be particularly great for someone who's um, getting into the online world, but is you know asking a lot of questions about those edges. And I'm thinking of you know some of the parents in our lives. Uh, so it's called Cyber Bullies, Cyber Activists, Cyber Predators, and it's out through Prager Press. We'll tweet out a link a little bit later. And um, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. You're with Bite Into It. Thanks for joining us. There's Colin, Dan and Vanessa here in studio and we've just been joined by a couple of guests from the wonderful Possible crowdfunding company who have their, uh, I think it's a head office you'd call it, in Collingwood. So they're nice and local. We have just been joined by General Manager Claire Makita and Communications Coordinator Bron Belcher. Welcome. Thank you very much for having us. It's a pleasure. Now, it's been a long time since we've spoken to anyone from Possible on the show. We have um, spoken to Rick a long time ago, Rick Chen, the uh, founder, when he was beginning uh, this this crowdfunding journey. Since then, uh, Possible has expanded into China, uh, possibly some other territories, I'm not aware. Yeah, we're in <laughs> Singapore and, yeah, China at the moment. Fantastic. And you're really our own local answer to things like Kickstarter and Indiegogo and other platforms that people might have heard of. Uh, you enable people to really get on and go and pitch a project to uh, the internet and and sort of have people nominate um, for rewards and, and, and put in and contribute to, to projects. So that's what you're all about. But you are relaunching your website and you've got a whole lot of new features and things coming. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the process um, behind deciding that you needed a new website and uh, what's going to be happening there. Yeah, so we're about six years into starting Possible. Um, when we started, crowdfunding was pretty new it was just a few years old in the states and we kind of began as just an outlet for creatives really so there were a lot of film projects a lot of music projects that came on with us and as we've grown and as crowdfunding has changed and it's not a weird new thing anymore um we're starting to just see a lot more applications and i guess we wanted to build a platform that gave more room for those applications to grow so with the the new version of the site that we're building on top of it just being safer and, and faster and kind of updated with what's going on with the internet um we're also trying to create ways that's more flexible for people to use crowdfunding the way that they like. So, for instance, we've had a lot of partnerships with universities in recent years uh, using it to raise money for researchers who are in early career. And um, they have kind of their own requirements out of a project, and people use them in very different ways. So often when people think of crowdfunding, they think of a, a product or a technology kind of thing that you're trying to get, whereas we find that on Possible, people use it very much to support causes or, or knowledge or, you know, creatives. So it's very altruistic, and we kind of wanted to create space for that to happen in a better way. So how did you start the process of getting feedback and um, and deciding, you know, if you would test with any users or anything? Well, we did a survey of our one percenters, which are the people that pledge most often on Possible. Um, it's pretty crazy. We've had people that have pledged to hundreds of projects. And we just wanted to kind of find out what they liked about crowdfunding and why they used it. And we learned a lot from that community. And, and that's where kind of the, the altruistic spirit came out of it. We found that one in three people didn't want a reward. Most of these people didn't want to be recognized in any way. They just really liked finding stories that they connected to. Um, and yeah, and we, we, kind of, we kind of wanted to build 
not just a platform but a community and I think that's why we really embrace the fact that we're made in Australia and we're based in Collingwood and just coming up with a whole way to support that outside of just the website so the website is a technology but at the same time we are for instance opening up our office and saying to creators if you want a free space a free co-working space a free event space you can come and work with us and all these kinds of things so yeah i think it's just creating that community right so you are based in collingwood but you've had pledges from 105 countries i think that's right and and china the usa and singapore amongst the biggest uh, countries in terms of pledges what are the sort of cultural challenges that you have to deal with is that informing the uh, revamp of the website to be better meet the needs of people in different countries with different ideas and projects? Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I, I guess we're trying to be more flexible, but I think with this launch, we're also trying to come back to our roots because a lot of people don't realise that Possible were made in Australia, that we are Australian-made, and despite that, we have kind of beat all the other big guys in terms of our success rate. We have the, most, the highest success rate of any platform. So, But it has been, it has been really challenging. So if, I think a very interesting cultural example, I guess would be I come from Singapore and when I was when I started at Possible I was a Singapore manager and I found that it was really hard to get people to start projects in Singapore because they were so afraid of failing and they just kept asking what happens if I fail what do I do whereas in Australia I feel like people give it a go and if they fail sometimes they come back and run another project and it's not a big deal to them yeah to have a go is a very ingrained value here yeah yeah and I I really like that um but yeah with this launch I think we are starting with Australia we're still leaving room for for things to to grow in other countries but we're not trying to rush it in any way we're kind of embracing what we've done well and we feel that that is in Australia so, Bron, as communications coordinator, um, you must be behind some of the, the great uh, outreach sort of things and, and some of the ways that you build community. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about some of the ways that you um, open your doors to people and let them learn? Yeah, well, I guess that is part of what we're talking about with kind of being local. And I, we find that being based in Australia and having so much Australian content come through our platform has been really amazing. And um, not just being platform-based we do offer heaps of one-on-one support and that kind of comes through in all of the team offers we're talking to project projects all the time and we do have people come in and use our space all the time the possible um offices in collingwood often have like creative meetups and um creative dinners and things happening and if any projects are using this if they need space while they're making a project they can always come in and use our um use our space and our web <laughs> internet and everything like that so early on you definitely threw a lot of events that were this is what crowdfunding is are you still finding that there's a need for that level of um of event or is it more specific like do you do campaigning tricks for bands or campaigning tricks for different types of segments we run crowdfunding workshops all the time that are kind of more just for anyone who wants to run a campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have we have previously done more music ones or more um, focused events, but we are finding that it's better to partner with other people too. So whether people who have an idea for a campaign or have a group, so councils or um, artists, artist organizations and stuff coming to us and we're going to them saying you know there's lots of people in your communities that might need us how can we make targeted possible crowdfunding stuff work for you and i think when we started it was very much this is a strange thing that people don't know what it is and we have to educate people about it and now it's more everybody knows what it is or most people do but it's it's a matter of teaching them how to do it well for us 
our, our most important metric and the thing that we're proudest of is really our success rate. So we don't want to just have projects, tons of projects come on the site. We want to make sure that they're successful. And that often involves projects that come to us and tell us their idea and we think this is never going to happen. We don't say it, obviously, <laughs> but we do think this is really strange. Um, but we just give them a go and we, we try our best to support them. And I think the best part of, of working in crowdfunding is that you will always find projects that surprise you, that you think wouldn't succeed, or even ones that you think this, this should be so easy to, you know, to work, and it, and it doesn't. So we're still learning. It's still quite a young industry, but we're definitely moving into kind of a maturation, I guess. <laughs> I wanted to ask about that success rate being so high. Do you think that is due to the extra support that Possible gives the creators? And is there something that the successful projects do that you've noticed as a trend that um, could be shared and that people could learn from? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I think with the bigger platforms, perhaps just because they see themselves more as a technology solution rather than a community, um, a lot of their the process of creating a project is automated, so there isn't really a human looking at the project. Whereas for us, I think as Bron can attest, <laughs> every single project that comes through gets to speak to either Bron, myself, or Elliot, or someone from the team, and everyone is approved just to just to offer help and also to make sure there's nothing weird going on. Um, Bron actually keeps a collection of all the people that have uploaded strange photos instead of their <laughs> driver's license. <laughs> so we've got cats, we've got photos of the back of people's heads. Yeah, it's quite funny. There's some strange... Um People thinking what photo ID is, you know, what what is that? It's a photo of my mom eating a birthday cake last year. Yeah. But it really is, and I think I think the thing about crowdfunding is we we call it the trough of sorrow, and you'll hear this term in the startup world as well. It's you start you start something, it's really exciting, you've pushed the project out there, you get lots of attention, and then it always goes quiet, and it goes quiet for every single project. And often our job is pretty much just telling people don't give up during the trough of sorrow because it always comes back towards the end, um, especially for us because we're an all-or-nothing platform, so you have to hit your target in order to get the money. There's a huge urgency with people rallying around the project towards the end. But definitely, I think just having someone on the other side of the line or saying, come in and chat to us, really helps get them there. It's uh, fantastic to hear someone mentioning the Gartner hype cycle in in studio. (laughs) It's a favourite. So you released this amazing blog post about some of the the things that you'd learnt over the the length you know, the time you'd existed. Uh, what Were there any surprises there for you? Yeah. Well, I think because so much of when we started, our identity was tied to the creative industries and we always thought that, you know, film, music, these are the ones that are always going to be there and be really strong. But we've actually seen in, in recent years that growth has not come from those areas. Growth has come from new applications. So things like research, which we never really thought would take off in the way that it has. And it's taught us a lot about, I was just saying to Bron earlier, that crowdfunding platforms in different countries, if you look at the major ones, they're almost a reflection of what that country cares about. So in the States, the major crowdfunding platforms are often, like I said, to do with technology. And that's kind of their, I guess, their obsession with kind of new gadgets and kind of consumerism and all that kind of thing. the American dream. Exactly. Whereas in Australia, interestingly, tech companies or startups don't seem to do very well on possible um what we've seen do really well are things that have an interesting story or a cause the environment uh, i think over christmas a whole front page just because of the algorithm were all environmental projects so those are the ones that were doing really really well and that surprises and, and i think it, it informed a lot of what our launch is going to be about and trying to focus on different areas and where people are moving with it really 
Well, I really look forward to seeing your site after the uh, after the relaunch and uh, and looking into more of those trend posts as you go forward. I feel like you're the local OK Cupid in terms of putting out <laughs> really interesting stats to read. So that's fantastic. Thanks for your time, Claire and Bron. On Triple R, you're with Bite Into It for the last little bit with Dan, Colin, and Vanessa. Thanks for tuning in. And uh, we have a quick public service announcement, Dan. A quick public service announcement. Uh, for those of us who uh, use QuickTime on Windows, uh, you need to stop doing that, basically. Um, Apple, Apple are no longer supporting QuickTime for Windows. And, uh, it already has two known vulnerabilities. Already has two known vulnerabilities. So if you are, you, if you are using QuickTime uh, to watch or listen to anything, you need to uninstall it and use one of the many other media, uh, media players that are available for Windows that still have support. That's all I have to say about that. Excellent, excellent. Well, uh, we are going to go into a few events. Melbourne Knowledge Week is coming up from the 2nd to the 8th of May and events are starting to book out, so I thought we'd mention it again this week. Uh, it's less than two weeks away uh, and the events include a massive community maker day from 10 to 4 on Sunday the 8th of May. So if you're a maker or a potential maker, you're interested in making what you make already, uh, maker communities around the world uh, are interested in transforming traditional craft using new technology. So think about carpenters who start getting into using 3D printers and people messing with robots and quadcopters. This is your chance to connect with other makers and learn how to solder, build a robot or even create your own wearable technology art slash fashion pieces. It's presented by the Connected Community Hackerspace and you can check it out by Googling Melbourne Knowledge Week. We'll also tweet out some links later. There's also... Uh, the Melbourne Data Science Initiative, Medasayan Medicine. They're holding an event on the 5th and 6th of May. It's a it's for data scientists by data scientists, basically. And they're having a meet-up where there'll be tutorials, workshops and 16 speakers and a bit of a data-thon happening over, over those two days. Sounds yep, good. Cool. Um, Avant Whatever Festival is uh, happening here at Triple R in the performance space from July 13th to 17th. Um, the, it includes four nights of concerts at, uh, right here in the performance space behind uh, my, my chair, as well as uh, talks, workshops, and outdoor festivals, uh, outdoor, sorry, performances along uh, Merry Creek just down the road there, uh, featuring international guests Gabby Lazonsi, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Jason Lesalit, and Manfred Verda, alongside Melbourne and Australia's most unique talents all pushing the boundaries of music as we know it uh we're tell- telling you about it now because early bird season tickets are available um until june the 1st and that's when all other tickets go on sale we will tweet out a link uh to that stuff yeah i do love that festival because it is a bunch of people thinking really differently about how they how they make sounds and, and light and uh i love the idea that we can really champion experimental uses of well technology and sometimes not technology mm, true yep so wanted to send out a sweet reminder to everybody that it is april that means april amnesty is on it's just a, a quiet time of year where we like to remind people who maybe pledged to subscribe during radiothon and, and never followed through or people who don't really understand how the station works to to get on board and subscribe so what we are as triple r is we're a not-for-profit and independent community broadcasting service so we don't get any government funding for our you know our regular sort of broadcasting sort of things the station as it is um we run some some sponsorship announcements uh, that fit in with our ethos and that's about it we really rely upon you the listener um so there's no one out there cracking a whip and making sure that you pay if you listen to this station it's you know obviously out there free on the airwaves and we hope that you really enjoy it but for people who enjoy it a lot they might want to subscribe and they can do so by going to the website rrr.org.au 
you. The rates are really reasonable. Um, a full subscription is 75 bucks, concessions 40, a passionate's 125, business is 150. If you're a band, artist or DJ, it's $75. And these also get you a sweet little card that gets you discounts with, uh, triple R friendly businesses around town. Also, you'll be in the running for a whole lot of prizes during April Amnesty. But that's not the reason we do it. We do it for that fantastic warm feeling that we get from pitching into something that uh, really, you know, connects us to our community. Everyone here does it for the love, so um, I hope that you love Triple R2 and are interested in April Amnesty. We want to say a big um, plug to our podcaster, Justin Petch, this evening. Um, it took us a long time to get a regular podcaster on the show, which was a little bit of an embarrassment for the tech show. <laughs> and Justin has been doing a stellar job uh, getting getting our show out there. Uh, we might be chatting to him about his podcast sometime in the future. He's got one of his own, so he's a bit of a pro. Um, but before we do go, um, a little bit of weird news of the week. Um, in the search for power, electricity is secure, affordable and environmentally sensitive. Um, the University of Bath in the UK's uh, De- Department of Chemical Engineering has uh, developed small microbial fuel cells that exploit the biological process of bacteria, which sounds absolutely bloody disgusting, <laughs> to generate from an even more disgusting part, electricity from urine. Um, so, look, I'm not going to say that we should start stockpiling or anything like that but um you never know in the future it might actually be useful i'm glad you mentioned that because i saw the the pea power show up um, in the news and i actually i followed the trail from the (laughs) (laughs) no pun intended sure i followed the i followed the trail from the uh, cute article to the university press release to the actual peer-reviewed paper when they talk about this and actually like it's legit they're making micro power cells powered by bacteria and they figured out a way to replace the platinum with something that's that's organic and they could be powering phones um, in places that may not have as much access to power so it's a pretty pretty interesting that's idea really it's fantastic because they're trying you... to make the process green as well as the the products that, that involved like the hardware often the hardware falls down in this scenario and when you nip off to the bathroom you can charge your phone at the same time so everyone's a winner i, I, I would love to have been one of the uh, academics who was asked to peer review that particular piece of research because you'd just be sitting there going are you serious are you serious you gotta love that it's come out of university in bath though like, no one wants good. to talk about <laughs> <urine>. <laughs> that's pretty good we don't talk about urine in the bath <laughs> no we really don't <laughs> And on that that uh, very green friendly tech note, we're going to leave you this evening. Thanks for tuning in tonight. Uh, big ups to our guests, Dr. Lauren Rosewarn, Claire Makita, and Bron Belcher. Uh, and we've been right into it. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.